0: Hello and welcome to the Career Explorations in Genomic Medicine Research podcast. This program is sponsored by the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill's Program for Precision Medicine and Healthcare. This Career Explorations program is aimed at undergraduate students. Our goals are to help you expand your knowledge of potential careers related to genomic medicine research and we hope to increase your understanding of what you will need to do to become a member of the genomic medicine research workforce. We also want to help you build a supportive network of professionals. Each episode of this podcast series presents a conversation with a researcher or clinician who works in a particular aspect of genomic medicine research. Jean Cadogan is an associate
1: professor of social medicine and a core faculty member in the Center for Bioethics at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. She was a sociology major as an undergraduate and then went to graduate school in anthropology. As an investigator in UNC's Center for Genomics and Society, she studies the ethical, legal, social, and policy implications of translating genomic research into clinical care.
0: What do you consider the greatest ethical dilemma of genetics right now?
1: I think the biggest problem that the field of genetics faces at the moment from an ethical, legal, and social implications standpoint is FAIR just use and application of its technologies. So we have science fields of including a diverse group of people to Um, participate in research studies we are um, our reference group um for reference dna is made up almost entirely of white men frankly i mean not even white women too it's like the reference dna was white men and we suck frankly at making sure that we have a more diverse pool of reference genetic samples to make real advances. Assuming we can make real advances, then the next thing is making sure that all of the things that we advance for get applied in just equitable ways to all segments of the population.
2: Yeah, Uh, do you mind talking a little about what you're working on now, some of your research you're doing?
1: Sure. So at any given time, I have five or six different research projects going. So I'll just tell you about the ones I know I'm working on today, for example. (laughs) Um, So this morning I was working on looking at interviews that we did with people who run biobanks, and a biobank is, you might all know, but just in case you don't, um, they're loosely defined collections of human genetic samples and associated data that are stored long-term and used for future research projects. And there are a lot of ethical and legal issues associated with around doing this. So ethics, just quickly, one is how do you properly consent someone to participate in a biobank when the whole idea is for future unspecified research uses. So basically, you have to ask someone, hey, will you give this sample? And we're not sure what we're going to do with it. So trust us which goes in the face of any kind of proper consent that we normally give people because we normally tell people when they consent to something like, Hey, this is what we are planning to do with your sample or do in this research project. Okay. So that, that's one ethical issue associated with biobanking. Another is on the more legal side. um, What is the official ownership of those samples once they are brought into a collection? And um, is it properly conveyed? Okay, my answer to that, sadly, is almost certainly um, that the person who donated it doesn't own it anymore. (laughs) So is that properly conveyed to people? in a transparent way. And what happens if we do some kind of great commercial discovery with the samples that have been collected and we make lots and lots of money? Do we have any plans to share money with you? And the answer almost always is no. So is that properly conveyed? Do people you know, have expectations that are in line with what the reality would be? So I have done interviews with biobank managers for years and years about a bunch of ethical issues. And the ones that I'm most interested in now are basically a lot of the ones I just said, but but more to the point that a lot of biobanks don't have plans for how they're going to be sustainable. So they say that we're going to facilitate research forever. I mean, <laughs> a lot of times there's no set end point. And yet they don't have the funding for that. They don't have a proper business. have nothing beyond, you know, maybe a few years of funding to ensure that this continues. And what happens then essentially is they're, they're possibly breaking kind of a promise that they've made to people who donate the specimens. So if you have a rare genetic disease, for example, and you have donated your specimens on the hope that someone will do research on this, and we will make real advances, um, and then the biobank just closes, or they don't properly ensure that researchers are accessing the samples, which is incredibly common. How, how do we deal with that from an ethical standpoint. I think that I would argue you have broken a promise to people Mm. and there ought to be ways that we ensure that we don't break those kinds of promises. So we need to have better plans. So that's one project, trying to eventually get toward recommendations for more ethical Design and management and conduct of biobanks to help facilitate real advances in genomics that will benefit uh, the people who gave samples willingly or benefit their children or grandchildren. Mm. So that's one project. And then another project that I'm working on today is I'm looking, I did a bunch of interviews with people who are parents of children with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which if you know anything about Duchenne muscular dystrophy, you know that it is a terrible, horrible disorder that essentially weakens muscles and heart and lung function over about two decades of a child's life when then they eventually die in early twenties. There is no cure. Death is certain from it, unless they die of something else before then. It's a terrible, terrible disease. And Duchenne is one of a few conditions that have been put forth as a possibility for an early clinical trial in gene editing research. The hope is that they could edit DNA in, it almost pr- almost always affects boys. So when I say boys, I'm not really neglecting girls. It's just that they don't typically get it. So if they can edit the DNA in boys who have Duchenne, they might be able to create a, make it so that a protein that um, does sort of doesn't inhibit muscle Functioning is turned off or turned on. Okay, this is where you now realize I'm a social scientist, not a geneticist. <laughs> so, anyway, it's a prime candidate for gene editing as a possible cure and so we conducted in interviews with parents who have children with duchenne about their thoughts about this using gene editing as a possible cure walking through the potential risks and benefits and asking about you know their their responses to possible risks their thoughts about who might be ultimately chosen for clinical trials? Um, Are there equity issues in that? And yes, there are. If you ever wonder, are there equity issues in something, the answer is almost always yes. (laughs) But gene editing clinical trials will very likely be geared toward younger patients of Duchenne, whose disease has not progressed as far as older patients. But of course, Older patients um, are likely to accept more risks because they basically their, their diseases progressed more than younger patients who um, maybe aren't so poorly off yet. so the the idea is for parents perspective, we really want it done first in older patients who would be willing to accept more risk and who are getting to an age where they can consent themselves because imagine the horrific responsibility of being a parent and signing your very young child up for a clinical trial that has no safety and efficacy proven benefits at this point and who's not doing poorly yet you know you, that's a tremendous responsibility, but yet if we're going to prove safety and efficacy, it's probably much more likely that we're going to do it in younger kids than older. We are going to contrast those interviews with interviews a colleague of ours did with patients and parents with sickle cell disease, and a sickle cell disease is a um, also seen as prime candidate for early gene editing clinical trials, has the added layer of primarily affecting minority populations. In this country, we think of it most often as those of African descent, uh, although there are other populations that suffer from sickle cell disease too. So in this country, essentially it gets operationalized as a, a black condition and with all of the associated challenges that that brings with thinking about equity and what's right and and what's wrong and how, how do we ensure safety, people fault properly understand what they'd be consenting to. Um, So we'll be able to contrast the interviews with the DMD parents, with the um, sickle cell patients and sickle cell parents. And we will look for things like discussion of justice in there. And we're going to, we know already that we'll see them almost entirely in sickle cell and not in DMD. And we want to be able to write about these kinds of differences. Yeah. So those are two, two of my several projects that I'm just going to happen to be working on today. Thank you. Sure.
3: <laughs> I come I'm, I'm from a background where I'm only used to like uh, hearing from traditional science researchers. So <laughs> you know, like in the, in the lab bench. And, you know, I've been part of clinical research labs where I do a lot of literature review, but, you know, I'm kind of unfamiliar with your uh, field. So, I mean, I know I've seen the uh, question on this pamphlet talking about what a typical day is like for you, but I'm a little curious as to where your research is oriented, like where, where most of your time is devoted to, um, as far as like, what kind of, what kind of implications you have on the projects. Does mm. that make sense? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Okay. I, I, well, I'll start to answer and then you can tell me if I'm, if I'm answering properly or I've, I've misunderstood. But what I think what I'm interpreting you as asking me is how does the ethics or the legal or the social stuff when I, Bring it up or point it out or whatever, how how does it have or does it have any impact on moving the science forward, for example, or changing the way things are. Is that right?
3: Yeah, that's actually spot on. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's what I was mostly concerned about. Cause like I know that this is like a pretty big issue, but I just wanted to see how it related to the actual science and like
1: Yeah. Okay. So Mercifully, um, I collaborate with amazing, wonderful scientists who think that um, ethical issues and legal issues and um, social issues related to the kind of research that they do um, matter. Okay, so that's the first thing that I actually hang out with people that already think it matters. So for the most part, I don't have to spend my life convincing them it matters. The people who are in my field sometimes get seen as the, quote, ethics police that we're just going to come in and tell you all the things you're doing wrong and how you're violating people's rights and, you know, that kind of thing, which doesn't lead to great collaborations (laughs) with scientists. But that hasn't been my experience. I think Mm -hmm. that a big way it has impact is, To begin with the design of a research study, so when we think about implementing, um, we did a, a genomic screening program for healthy adults several years ago through the Center for Genomics and Society, and we offered people a panel of medically actionable conditions. And we had a ton of discussions early on that I would call ethics discussions about what is actually medically actionable? Like, what does it mean to be medically actionable? Um, and is it medically ac- actionable if you don't have insurance? Who would we offer our screening program to? Should we offer it to people who are pregnant? Because maybe they want to know these things, um, and they might think about them in terms of Um, their future offspring, they might think about them in terms of whether they would terminate a pregnancy. If you know you were, I don't know, BRCA1. Okay. So maybe you wouldn't offer it to pregnant people. Would you offer it to people who already have children? Would you offer it to people who don't have children? Do you offer it to older people who aren't likely to benefit from a finding at this point in time that they have a genetic variant that confers a much higher risk of a condition for them when they're already 70 years old. Is that beneficial to them? So would you offer it or would you not offer it? I hope that a lot of what we do is impacts the front end of the design of a research study. Is it going to impact what somebody does In the lab, probably not. I think it's more going to be thinking about interactions with research subjects than specific lab work. But it might influence them to think about what's a reasonable condition to put on a panel for genetic screening that would be useful to people. We had long conversations about including whether hemochromatosis would be included on our genetic panel. The benefit of knowing that you have a genetic variant associated with a higher risk of having hemochromatosis is you can get blood draws and you can lower your iron levels. Well, somewhere along the way, we decided that we would return results for heterozygous for hemochromatosis. And we had a whole bunch of people who had positive results because they were heterozygous for hemochromatosis, which as far as I can tell, doesn't really change anything in your life. And kind of led to a lot of confusion when people were trying to understand their results. And so we might have argued that not necessarily it was unethical to have returned the hemochromatosis, but we unnecessarily confused people in a way that felt wrong after it was done, and when we would interview them, and they would be so confused, and whether they questioning whether they needed to tell family members about their heterozygous um, result for hemochromatosis. I can tell you one other thing that we're hoping to do is um, I just got funded for a research project that is looking at it's it's kind of in reaction to the gene editing of the twin girls in China, if you've heard Mm -hmm. about that, when Dr. He Jiankui came out to the world at a massive um, international genomics conference saying, in November of 2018 saying, guess what? I have successfully edited and implanted embryos that have resulted in the live birth of twins. And I edited them so that they had, could confer some resistance to HIV. Mm-hmm. I edited the gene CCR5, so they would have some resistance to HIV. And isn't this exciting because HIV is in China, um, you know." have a fairly high rate of HIV in China and isn't this so wonderful they'll be protected from HIV and the world um, was reacted with outrage mostly scientists um, reacted with outrage and it really became after that a discussion about how we ought to consider governing um, human genome editing like what what kinds of rules should be in place that um might not already be in you know ways we can apply current laws to gene editing so what additional things might we need and are there ways that we could ever come up across the entire world with a belief that we could all have the same laws like there's something about our collective humanity that would make us Come together and decide the world over. This is what's acceptable in human genome editing, and this is what's unacceptable. And can re- and can scientists abide by that in a global environment that scientific environment that applauds basically big scientific advances? Um, telling scientists to pull back on something. How can how can we ever make that work? So our current project that we just got funded is to, we're surveying genome scientists. uh, So people who do gene editing on laboratory animals with the goal of trans, eventually that it's a translational science. So some of their research would translate into potential human gene editing. And we are interviewing some Scientists also who are doing work um, on genes that might eventually be relevant for editing in humans, um, and we'll be asking them about their thoughts about the boundaries of human gene editing. You know, what what should be off limits, if anything? Uh, traditionally, we have said enhancement is off limits, but just like we do in sports, for example, that you can see the creep of enhancement in in sports and how that works. So are we looking at a similar kind of gene as gene editing advances and we move it from treatment, you know, those poor Duchenne boys, and we are trying to treat them and we are um, trying to get them better to preventing a disease like He Junque did with Preventing HIV, which is crazy in so many ways, but would we gene edit it to prevent disease? And then would we, you know, gradually start allowing enhancements? Um, this is where people talk about designer babies in whatever way, but if you can um, treat or prevent cognitive decline in people so that they don't get dementia early would we think eventually about using those same technologies to enhance cognition among people who are not at risk for any kind of decline? So that's this, the, that's that study, and it's big, with interviews, observations of scientists and of policymakers doing gene editing policy work, all to try to hope to influence the dialogue about whether and how gene editing should be regulated at a local level, a national level, or a global level.
3: Thank you for that.
0: <laughs> it's really long.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah, it explained everything.
0: Uh, you said that it, maybe it's a little crazy to think about um, gene editing to prevent an infectious disease like HIV, wow. but do you ever think, I mean, just like we take vaccinations, you know, with COVID-19, the rush to develop a vaccine Could um, gene editing be beneficial against uh, infectious diseases?
1: Yeah, so yes is the answer. Um, That is a way we could go with it, certainly. And um, what happened for our project, we were surveying these gene editing scientists, and COVID hit, and we were still developing our survey. Um, we felt like, shoot, we need to make this like COVID relevant somehow. So like people will open our link when they get an email. And, you know, so we, we designed some COVID questions about the reasonableness and feasibility of using gene editing to address COVID. And thought we were being so clever, right? <laughs> we got back a bunch of responses like, like I just don't even see how that can ever happen. And the thing is, like, it, it probably could happen, but we we were somehow way too far down the pipe. Like they they were not going to play that game with us. Um, so those questions failed. But I will tell you what question didn't fail about COVID, which was a question about. If there were to be ways that we could use gene editing to address COVID in one way or another, whether it's preventive, whether it's treatment, I don't know exactly, ought it fall under the same kinds of regulations as other gene editing techniques, right? So would should we fast track it? Should we... Um, think more about safety for COVID than other things, this, that, and the other. And the results indicate like people, if we could get to a point, you could use gene editing for COVID, that there was more endorsement for essentially having looser regulations for its use than other kinds of gene editing protocols, which I found interesting. You know, they, they people seemed, I guess with anything, I mean, now with public health, crises, we are happier to loosen all kinds of things or or tighten things. So like, you know, when we think about public health ethics compared to, say, clinical ethics or research ethics, which is so terribly focused on the individual and what is best for an individual, public health ethics, we think about what is the most beneficial for the public. And out in the answers to that question that, this is such a public health emergency that we ought to proceed even if we would worry more about safety efficacy regulations if we're doing the right thing.
2: I had a uh, like a piggyback question. Do you see that same sort of response for other public health infectious diseases? I mean I keep thinking about I was I think I was listening to like a like a radio segment about um, introducing a gene editing that would uh, limit the number of mosquitoes to
1: <laughs>
2: the outbreaks of malaria in certain areas of the of the, of the world but I, is that do you see anything anything similar with that
1: yeah so oh it's so interesting so i don't know a ton about it because i'm really interested in the human aspects of of um gene editing but yeah these Things called gene drives, and and um, they can be the the uh, one you're referencing. time is, um, you know, could we essentially release mosquitoes that have been edited so that? Okay, I'm just where just with a grain of salt. I'm not a scientist, <laughs> so my understanding is, Lana, tell me when I've got it wrong. <laughs> My understanding is that um, they're edited so that when they mate, they are not going to be able to carry the malaria parasite in the same way so that they wouldn't infect people with, like future generations wouldn't infect people with malaria. And wouldn't this be wonderful because malaria is hideous, is a hideous illness that a lot of people die from in the poorest areas of the world it's terrible and it would be wonderful to get rid of malaria but is this the way to do it because of course we don't know what effects we'll have on ecosystems we think how you prove this concept right in a way that is sustained in a small area so so anyway it's hugely controversial. And, and another interesting one is efforts to deal with Lyme disease, which comes from tick bites. And that one I don't understand as much. It's like editing mice that carry it. I don't, I don't get it. But releasing genetically modified, I think it's mice, into um yeah. they wanted to do it on an island like Nantucket Island and see if they could eradicate um tick-borne illnesses Lyme disease and what permission do you get from a community and who's the community and is it like 51 percent vote to say yeah you can do this or do you have to do it with a hundred percent of the population okay there's just so many really fascinating ethical questions about whether and how this should be done and who counts as influential and who who counts to say no if they don't want it done. So yeah, I, I should know more about it because I do find it kind of shocking and fascinating all at the same time. But I tend to just do the human stuff. I will say another thing um, that I could touch on a little bit of my work that might interest Jonathan considering going to medical school is I once I sort of fell into the LC field I started learning a lot about research ethics and once I started learning a lot about research ethics I started learning a lot about clinical ethics and eventually um, joined the UNC hospital ethics committee and the clinical consultation service. And basically what we do is we have a threefold mission. One is education about ethics to people in the hospital. Two is um, policy review and development. So if there are a million policies in the hospital and when it's recognized that a new one is needed or the one we have needs updating and there are ethical components of it, then we will help out with that. And then the third one is for patient care, you know, are there ethical dilemmas that have come up um, that would be helped out with an ethics consult um, where we help talk through different options um, and a patient can call an ethics consult or any medical provider can call an ethics consult. Well because of my background in the Center for Genomics and Society and that the LC stuff, the consults, whenever we get a consult or a policy to review and help update that's related to genetics, they, they tend to ask me to help out with it. And this is one of the aspects of my job that I absolutely love the most because it feels like it is directly associated with patient care and making sure that we are doing what is right and good by patients. So for example, a recent consult came up where um, it became clear that laboratory results, there's more and more push to make sure that we always have laboratory results put properly in medical records. And the electronic health record is becoming like, the holy grail of information about an individual. And we're just so thrilled about um, all that we can put in an electronic health record and all that it can be shared across multiple institutions and uh, all this stuff. Well, they realized that they didn't have a policy related to when laboratory results come back that show as an incidental finding, and by incidental finding, I mean the lab workup was not meant to look for this, but because of the workup, the way it was done, something incidental was found. So it reveals an incidental finding that a presumed biological parent is not a biological parent. And what do you do with this information? I can tell you that this isn't a new issue that, that, you know, we call it misattributed parentage or misattributed paternity has really been the one that we've talked about more often because almost always through history, it's the father who is not the father rather than the mother who isn't the mother. That being said, things are a little bit different now with the rise in in vitro fertilization because now it is in fact possible that um, you were implanted with the wrong egg and sperm. So you could have misattributed motherage. I don't know what the word is now. But at any rate, it's long been an issue. The mother thing now is different though. And also the heavy, like cheerleading of the electronic health record means that um, the lab result is going to go in there and it can be accessed by a parent say the parent who is not the biological parent at some point in the future the child that's usually found within you know they've done something to the child that is the then finds that the parenting the parentage isn't the right parentage, genetically speaking. So the child at some point later in its life will be able to get, you know, gain access to medical records if the child wants it and could find this information. So how do we deal with this? And it's those kinds of things that, um, like I said, impact patient care and really thinking through complex, policy-relevant issues that get me kind of excited about um, my job. I think it's particularly fun. And, and Jonathan, as a f- potential future medical student, um, you might find those kinds of clinical implications interesting too. So Jean, where do your f- funding sources tend to be? So almost entirely, I'm funded by the National Human Genome Research Institute of the NIH. But within that is a program called the Ethical, Legal, and Social Implications Program. And it has a funny history to it, In the program does, in that when... They were creating the Human Genome Project in the, 19, I guess it was 1990s. There was a lot of, I don't know what the right word is, concern, uproar a little bit about doing this, mm-hmm. and the potential ethical implications of sequencing the human genome. It just felt really huge and complicated and maybe we ought not be doing this and this and that and the other. Well, in an action that perhaps he has come to regret, the head of NHGRI, it was NIH. Anyway, I think it was Francis Collins at that point. Somebody said, "Don't worry, we're going to devote five percent of our budget, basically from now on, <laughs> to studying the ethical, legal, and social implications of what we're doing."
4: Mm-hmm. No.
1: And so there's this pot of money designated for this exact thing. And the field has really um, exploded since that time because, as you can imagine, there are ethical, legal, and social issues associated with, like, any kind of science. (laughs) And so what's interesting is, so almost entirely I'm funded through that program, but what's interesting is that the other NIH institutes like the National Institute for AIDS and Infectious Diseases, for example, they don't have a similar ELSI program. And yet absolutely Mm -hmm. there are ethical, legal, and social issues associated with any of the work done, Mm -hmm. basically any scientific research. And so the questions become like, could we, should we, would we transfer some of the knowledge that's been gained in how to develop a field of ELSI to other scientific pursuits. Uh, The one that it's made the most progress on, um, but still is in its infancy compared to genomics is uh, neuroscience. And you can Mm -hmm. imagine neuroscience has a lot of ethical issues associated with it. Um, Mm -hmm. But anyway, so that's where my funding comes Mm -hmm. from. And it's interesting too, because it means that like Unless the LC program expands to other institutes, like I will always do this in relation to genomics. Mm-hmm. I could apply the same skills to other <laughs> sciences, but uh, mm-hmm. it will almost entirely always be genomics because that's where the funding is. Mm-hmm. Whether that's right or not, I don't know. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Only seven minutes left.
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> with the hour flew
0: by. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm happy yeah. to.
1: Answer anything else or not if we're if um, if we don't have any more questions. Maybe I I mean I'd love to hear what Langston or Nike or Jonathan hope to get out of the summer in terms of um, possibly switching gears for their careers or moving forward in one way or another.
2: Um, sure. I guess I can start. Um so I <laughs> I'm considering applying to a graduate school in the fall for uh, epidemiology and I wanted to really figure out a way because I enjoy what I'm doing now and I sort of want to combine that with epidemiology in some way and so I'm trying to just come up with different things that I could do or maybe some careers that I could sort of combine combine precision medicine with epidemiology and so I think and that's that that was sort of the main reason why I decided that's what I wanted to get out of this just to get some ideas which you've given me a few so thank you.
1: Oh that's wonderful that's a that's a great idea absolutely great idea would you want to stay at UNC?
2: Yeah.
1: Oh their program is phenomenal.
3: Yeah I've heard really good things. Yeah
1: it's just absolutely phenomenal oh it's
0: great
3: uh as for me um so I'm a rising junior, so I have uh, kind of ways to go as far as like deciding a career path, but you know, I'm just like in the middle, so I have to have some kind of concrete uh, idea. But um, this summer, I took the time to learn a couple soft skills like uh, coding, because uh, I've always been kind of interested in that, like technology, and uh, I've always been interested in learning like the implications of like uh, combining ke- technology with other fields. So, you know, I said that my major was uh, biomedical, but like I also have a really strong affinity to like research and biology. So I am considering going the uh, graduate school route rather, and maybe doing some bioinformatics because it seems to be interesting. Like coding is is really a lot more uh, interesting than I originally thought. And so. Yeah, I'm still kind of debating as far as a solid career choice.
1: Well, all the ones that you've mentioned are fabulous options. It's great. Nakia, can you tell us a little bit about maybe next steps for you, or is this a bad time?
4: No, I can talk. Um, So, like I said, I just finished – Uh, undergrad degree I'm looking to go to grad school to get a master's in biomedical sciences and I'm hoping to do some research there before actually applying and going to medical school I don't really have like a Specific tract as far as like what type of research I want to do. That's why I was interested in just being in this program to see what this is all about. But my ultimate goal is to do heart surgery. So maybe I could do some type of genetic research that leans more towards cardiovascular, cardiothoracic tract for, you know, and figure out how I can make the two work together.
1: That's a great idea. Absolutely great idea. Well, you guys have great options ahead of of you. It's very exciting.
4: Thank you so much. It's a a long road, but we'll get it done.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is a long road, but you know, the road um, basically is gonna keep going, whether you're on it doing um, (laughs) a graduate degree or you are working or whatever it is. So if this is something that um, really interests you, try not to get daunted by the number of years it will take to achieve the goal. Um, you know, you get through it, and then you really have something at the end of it. But it does, it can, I know it feels overwhelmingly long.
0: <laughs> I truly enjoyed this discussion. Thank you so much, Jean. Yeah,
1: yeah. thank um, you. you. You're very welcome. Well, I um, am happy to have done it. And I am happy that um, you all have exciting summers ahead of you. Um, hopefully you find some good things to spark your interest and ways to move forward with your career paths.
4: Thank you so much for taking this time out.
1: Oh sure. Happy. <laughs> All right. Well uh, Lana and Sabrina, thanks for so much for inviting me. Goodbye, everybody. Bye. Bye.